Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, there is a handout for this evening. This evening is going to be more of a Bible study than a sermon. Um, maybe one way you could say that it's more of a mess than a message. <laughs> no, it's not, that's not true. It's an organized Bible study, but I'm not going to be uh, doing a full-blown sermon. So there is a handout, and inside the handout is, uh, is, a, is a chart, and I included that because I realized after I printed the, the first handout that the chart on the inside is so small that some of you might protest. Uh, so, but you can, there's no different information on that. So you can open your Bible to the 53rd Psalm. Psalm 53 is our point of study tonight. I am picking this portion for us to go through because it does echo uh, some of the themes that we've been studying the last couple Sunday mornings. Remember earlier this month, we looked at the story of David and Nabal, the man whose name unfortunately rhymed with the word for fool or foolish, and he was a fool, and God brought him to an end. And we saw this morning how Saul confessed to David at their last conversation that I have played the fool. And this psalm, Psalm 53, is, has been positioned where it is in the Psalter around Psalms from that period of David's life. Um, while it was not written during that period, it has been placed here because it fits in with some of the flow of that, those stories from David. So let's begin with the reading of Psalm 53. It's a short psalm. It has some familiar verses. Psalm 53, we start with the heading. It says, For the choir director, according to Mahalath, a mosquil of David, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? There they were in great fear where no fear had been, for God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Well, the first thing I like to ask in these Bible studies on the Psalms is what kind of psalm was it that we just read? Uh, This one does not fit neatly into the major categories you know, when you sort your laundry, there are probably three or four major categories. When it comes to psalms, there are about half a dozen major categories and then smaller ones within that. And this one doesn't fit neatly into any of them. It's not a psalm of praise. It's not a lament. It's not a psalm of thanks. Um, so you can see the heading that I gave to this, that this is an unusual kind of psalm. We could call it a prophetic meditation, a prophetic meditation with a plea for deliverance. 
uh, there is, at the end of it, in verse 6, there is a lament, a prayer that deliverance would come to Jerusalem and that people would rejoice when it comes. But most of the previous verses are more like an indictment. This is what's wrong with the world, this psalm says. Uh, it does, in that way, give instruction, but it's not like a wisdom psalm. You know, It's not like Psalm 1, which is, blessed is the man who doesn't walk like this, but instead he's like that. There is teaching, but it's not that sort. So I've called it a prophetic meditation, but when I say prophetic, you need to understand that we don't mean by that that this is futuristic prophecy. Uh, when most of the time in Christian circles, when we talk about prophecy, we're thinking of foreseeing the future. And that is a major component of biblical prophecy, but it's not by any means the only kind of biblical prophecy. There are prophetic writings that talk about the present day of the author, where the author is, where the prophet is acting like a, an inspired preacher pointing out what's wrong in his day. In fact, even a lot of the prophecies of Isaiah are just like that. They're indictments. The, the term prophetic here doesn't refer to futuristic prophecy, but inspired analysis. Inspired analysis of events and opinions in David's day. He's looking at the world and seeing what's wrong with it. Uh, by the way, I think I've shared this with you before, but the, the books of the Bible that we often call the historical books, like Joshua, Judges, uh, Kings, Samuel, Kings, uh, we call these historical books, but the Jewish community has for many, many centuries called those the prophets because those writings are giving a prophet's understanding of Israel's past recounting stories in such a way as to show how they failed and how they succeeded in fulfilling their covenant obligations. In a different way, this psalm is a prophetic analysis of the, common de- the everyday life of, the, of David's day. Most of this psalm is David meditating on the foolishness and the godlessness of Israel's enemies. For the most part, he's speaking about the nations around Israel, not the Israelites themselves. There is a reference to the fool in verse 1, and I think we're to understand this as a generic reference. That is, it's not pointing at any one person in particular. Uh, David doesn't have Doeg the Edomite directly in mind. He doesn't have the king of Gath directly in mind, or Saul, or Nabal for that matter. Um, But he did deal with some notable fools in his day, didn't he? Uh, and we'll talk about what this mean, what the fool means when he says there is no God. It may be a little bit more than what you might think. Let's talk about the setting of this psalm, that is, what events of life it came out of and where, why it's placed here where it is uh, in the psalms. It, it is a psalm by David, we're told that in the heading, uh, and there's a collection of David's psalms that run from 51 to 70, and this is the there are five major books of the Psalms, and in this second book, you have some songs of Asaph, and then we have David's Psalms for about 20 of them. And many of these Psalms come from the period of David's running from Saul. Not all of them do, but some do. Um, and the background of this particular Psalm seems to be some type of international intrigue 
where enemy nations were threatening the kingdom of Israel. That's why in verse 6, there's this prayer that God would bring deliverance to Jerusalem, to Zion. That Sometimes these little prayers that are at the end give us a little window into what is the background behind all that's been written. There are enemy nations, foolish nations, morally foolish nations who think they can get away with anything. David meditates on the fact that they will not get away with what they think they are, but nonetheless prays for God to bring help. The reference to God's dwelling in Zion in verse 6 means that the events of the psalm had to have been no, later, no earlier than 1003. Now look with me at verse 6. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Zion, of course, is another name for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was not the capital until David had been reigning for seven years. In the days of Saul, Zion was a Jebusite city. Uh, It wasn't until David took the throne, he reigned. Where was it that David reigned at first? Do you remember? He reigned in Hebron. For seven years, Hebron which was, was a, a Calebite city uh, related to Abigail. Um, he reigns there, and then his mighty men take over the city of Zion, and he moves the capital there, and there the tabernacle is eventually set up. So uh, whatever was behind this intrigue had to have come after that point. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't have mentioned the Lord dwelling in Zion and bringing deliverance from there. Uh, the events of David moving the capital to Jerusalem is in 2 Samuel 5. By the way, this word Zion um, is a very, very old uh, Semitic word. It's not even a Hebrew word. And, and the meaning of it seems to be fortress. And uh, when David's men took over Zion, that's all the town pretty much was. It was a, a large fortress over a very vulnerable water supply. Uh, cavern and his men climbed up into that water supply and overtook the city and then it became known as the city of David. So this puts the background to this psalm somewhere in 2 Samuel and as you read 2 Samuel you find all kinds of wars that David wages against foreign powers but it's I think impossible to date with any clarity as to when exactly it took place. Okay, flip over to the inside of your bulletin, and we'll talk about the placement. Now, this is a different kind of setting. We've talked about who the author is and what period of life or history it came from. But this is more about why is Psalm 53 put here next to Psalm 52 and Psalm 54 and the things around about it. You, you remember, of course, that the Psalms are not arranged in chronological order. They're arranged much like our hymn book. There's a, a collection of themes and words that sometimes bind these things together. And the, and the arrangement changed over the 1,000 years that the book of Psalms was written until finally when it was finished after the exile, it came into the shape that we have it now. So one thing we notice as we look at the Psalms around Psalm 53 is that the surrounding Psalms focus on the themes of sin and judgment. Sin and judgment. Even going back to Psalm 50, which is not by David, was by one of David's uh, associates, Asaph, one of the key uh, worship leaders when he restored the tabernacle, um, is an indictment of the nation of Israel for her historical wickedness, that she has been unfaithful. For instance, if you look at Psalm 50, verse 7, 
Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. And uh, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the field is mine, the cattle of a thousand hills. Uh, It goes on to say that what God really wants is worship from the heart, not just mere ritual. So there's the issue of Israel's sin. And then Psalm 51, if you look at, the, look at Psalm 51, look at the heading to it. Psalm 51, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. It's a psalm of confession and restoration. And then there's Psalm 52. Look at the heading to Psalm 52. For the choir director, a mosquil of David, When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And then you see how the first verse is an indictment. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. It's an indictment of people, of Doeg and people like him. And then there's what we just read a while ago, Psalm 53. An indictment of the godless fool. The man who thinks that No God is going to hold him to an account for what he does. So Psalm 52 announced that there was an indictment against the wicked, while Psalm 53 says that there are some people who reject the idea of accountability. 52 says God's going to hold you to account for what you say and what you do, and Psalm 53 says then there's foolish people who think they can get away with anything, that there's no divine accountability. And it really is the fool who thinks that way. Psalm 52 says there's people who are committed to doing evil. Psalm 53 says, we'll go a step further, none are committed to doing good. You know, every once in a while we sing the, 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 there's an old gospel chorus, no, not one. You know that there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. You know, you could take those words and apply it to the sinfulness of humanity. There's not a one who does any good. No, not one. (laughs) No, not one. Uh, It's true, you know. Uh, Now, of course, we're talking about pre-grace. We're talking about before the transformation of our hearts and Jesus saving us. There is no good that any of us do that earns merit with God. And even the good we do without Christ is mingled with sin. All right, so that's why Psalm 53 is placed here partly for that. Now, I also want to say something about a copy of this psalm. This psalm is almost an exact copy of Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Now, you can flip back in your Bible if you want, or you can just look at your handout. And I've, prepared, I've uh, given you a comparison of the New American Standard of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, and I've highlighted all the things that are just a little bit different. Uh, And just to summarize the things that are different, Psalm 53 has a longer heading. Psalm 14, and I think actually I have this backwards here in the notes, say the use of God in Psalm 53 and the use of Yahweh in Psalm 14. So, most of the time in Psalm 53, the name, the title God is used, Elohim, whereas in Psalm 14, it's mostly the, the name of the Lord 
uh, Yahweh. And that is, by the way, a feature of the second set of the Psalms, from Psalms 42 to 72. They use Elohim much more frequently than the name Yahweh. And there's different theories as to why that is, that maybe this, uh, these were songs that were sung in a certain part of Israel. Uh, we can't say with certainty. Uh, one other difference is Psalm 14 has one more verse, but Psalm 53 has a verse that's quite a bit longer. And that longer verse, verse 5, is a bit harsher than what you find in the other one. So it, you might want to now take a look at the, the comparison there. And what I did, and I, I won't read through both of the Psalms, but wherever there's a yellow highlight, that means this is a spot where there's a difference in the wording. So, for instance, the heading of Psalm 14 says it's a psalm of David, whereas Psalm 53 says it's a mosquil of David. And we'll comment a little bit later about what mosquil might mean. And wherever there's a green highlight, that means that one of these psalms has something that there's no counterpoint to it in the other one. So this is interesting, isn't it? Just Even just looking at that display, at the colorations, there's slight differences. Sometimes in the Hebrew text, they're very slight. And interestingly, even there are spots where the Hebrew is the same, but for some reason the translators made a difference when, when there wasn't any difference between them. I didn't highlight those. So that, that raises the question, come back over to the other side, why would our Bibles have something like this? Why would the psalm be duplicated? Well, we can say, firstly, in a very general way, that whenever scriptures duplicate a portion or a story, it always deserves attention. Repetition is a divine kind of emphasis. It's the Holy Spirit's way of telling us to take note. It's not that there are other parts of the Bible that are unimportant, but there are some that are extremely important. I want you to think about in in the Bible how there are duplicated stories that really grab our attention. The story of creation is told twice in the book of Genesis. Chapter 1 gives the view of creation from the cosmos. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and it's this cosmological view. Whereas chapter 2 focuses on God's special creation of man. It's in chapter 2 that we learn how God made man out of the dust of the ground and how he brought all the animals to him and personally invested him with authority and how he fashioned woman out of his rib. That's a anthropological focus on creation. So those two stories of creation harmonize with each other and give us different understandings of what God did. So there's that. There is, um, there's the, the, the Ten Commandments. Twice they're given to us in Exodus at Mount Sinai. And again, Moses in the last couple months of his lives to stress to Israel the importance of their covenant relationship with God and the code that governed that relationship. There's the fall of Jerusalem three times, an extended narrative that's told. It's told to us in the book of Kings. It's told to us in the books of Chronicles. It's told to us in the book of Isaiah. It was an extremely deep low point in Israel's history, and there was much to learn for Israel to learn from it. And I think the ultimate example of all of these is, of course, the stories of the Lord Jesus. Four long books. That'll get your attention. (laughs) 
uh, each telling the story of Jesus from a slightly different perspective, choosing different details led by the Spirit to write to their audiences to help their individual audiences understand different facets of the life and ministry of Jesus. Well, now we come here to this psalm, and twice we are told the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's something very deeply profound about the truth of this psalm, and it's told a little bit differently. Again, the psalms are not identical. I think we are to assume that David issued different editions of it. There are other psalms of David that are duplicates like this. Psalm 18, for instance, is found in the end of 2 Samuel as well, slightly different. Maybe one is the original version and the other one is the orchestrated version for use in the tabernacle. Uh, And it's full of tremendous truths as well. So this psalm is duplicated because these topics are important. And also, the story of David's dealing with foolish Nabal and foolish Saul fits into the general time period of the surrounding psalms. Uh, I, I had you note already that Psalm 52 is about uh, grew out of David's conflict with Doeg the Edomite. And Psalm 54, look at the heading for that one. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a mosquito of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? Well, wh- what is that from? That's from 1 Samuel 24, and it happened again in 1 Samuel 26. And then look at Psalm 56. Psalm 56, the heading for the choir director, according to Jonath Elim Rehoikim, a Mactam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And Psalm 57, the, second in, the end of the heading says, a Mactam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. And Psalm 59 Look at that heading. Uh, a miktam of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. And then one more, Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. All of those I, picked, I, I selected for you are psalms that grew out of his conflict with Saul. Now, again, I don't believe Psalm 53 was written during that period. It was written later when David had taken control of Jerusalem, but it is placed here because it fits with this, the theme of conflict that David had with foolish people, foolish, godless people. And so if you were reading these Psalms with a knowledge of the stories of David and Saul, you would see how Psalm 53 fits into the shadows of that quite well. One other thing about the importance of this teaching in this passage, as well as Psalm 14, is that Paul found these words to be extremely helpful as he was arguing for the need of the gospel. He quotes from Psalm 14 and 53 in the book of Romans, chapter 3. These lines from David turn out to be very helpful in Paul explaining what is wrong with the human race. Leave your, keep your spot here in Psalm 53 and flip with in your Bible, to Romans 3, Romans 3, in the letter to the Romans, he is explaining to his uh, Jewish and Gentile Christian friends, who he's never met, that they have a lot in common, Jew and Gentiles, uh, that all of them are in need of grace, 
The Jews need grace. Their legalism, their law-keeping won't save them. God is not partial in salvation when it comes to whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And Gentiles, they need salvation. They're lost and groping around in the darkness and blackness of sin. And after talking about how Gentiles are lost in sin and Jews are lost in sin, he comes back now to say that we're all lost in sin. And he develops this in Romans 3, verses uh, 10 to 12. Uh, Let's look at verse 9. What then? Are we, we Jews, better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then Paul continues to quote from the Psalms, but he switches Psalms. He changes to Psalm 5 and verse 13 and turns to other passages later, sort of stringing together a number of related texts. So he takes words that David used to describe the enemies of the nation and says, you know, this is true of everybody, Gentiles and Jews. And, and, you know, you could see this kind of animosity towards God in people like Saul, in people like Nabal, and other henchmen who had surrounded themselves in that corrupt realm. So this is a psalm that has much to say, and it speaks across the millennia. Flip open, flip closed your handout, go to the back page, and, and uh, there's a couple comments I'd like to share before we uh, start to walk through the visual outline chart. Just a couple notes about historical matters and interpretive matters. And this psalm is often quoted when Christians think about how to interact or how to think about atheists, that it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. It is worth noting that in David's day, in fact, throughout almost all of ancient history for that matter, philosophical atheism, that is the, 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 the learned philosophical view that there were no gods at all, That, in David's day, was practically unheard of. I'm not saying that no one ever said it, but almost no one ever claimed that there were no gods. The peoples all around David believed that there were gods. In fact, lots of gods. They'd taken the knowledge of God that had been passed down and that they innately knew, and they warped it and twisted it and split up God into a hundred different parts and made a pantheons. But there were segments of populations... There were peoples in the nations around Israel and even Israelites who believed that there, were, there was a God or gods, but that those gods were hands-off, that they were not involved in the affairs of life. They didn't care. They didn't intervene. They certainly didn't judge. So with that background in mind, I believe it's best for us to understand verse 1 as describing a practical atheist. A practical atheist. This is someone who, they might believe that gods exist, or God exists, but that God is detached, uninvolved. And therefore they live as if there is no God. 
You say, can you support that idea of practical atheism from elsewhere in Scripture? And yes, in fact, I've written down just two verses here from Psalm 10 that would be good for us to flip back to. Psalm 10, verses 4 and 11, give us an example of this kind of thinking. Mm. No, I'm going to have a hard time reading Psalm 4. Oh, oh, Psalm 10. Okay, I, was, I flipped to the wrong spot. I, slipped, I went to Psalm 4, and there is no verse 11, so that was interesting. Uh, Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And then look with me now down at verse 11. The same kind of wicked people are described again. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. That's is really what is meant by this idea, there is no God. In fact, the Hebrew expression, there is no God, is a, the Hebrew terms that are used could actually be rendered a little bit differently. It could be rendered, God is not here. God is not here. There's no God here for us to worry about, for us to relate to, for us to answer to. And you know, this kind of practical atheism is far more popular than philosophical atheism. I'm not, by the way, I'm not defending philosophical atheism. I think it's foolish and bankrupt in many, in many ways too. I'm just saying that I think the kind of atheism that David is going after is this practical kind of atheism that says God's nowhere to be found. He doesn't care. He's not going to do anything. God is not here. And the reason I say there's plenty of times where this expression, there is no such and such, is used in context. I mean, uh, did, you, did you bring with you the men? And they say, and you would say, there are no men in Hebrew, which means, well, it doesn't mean they don't exist. It means they're not here. Uh, and so this idiom is used quite often to say, here and now, I don't have those things, or that thing is not here. The idea that God is not present to do anything and does not care to do anything about what mankind does. And behind that is this idea that there is no accountability. It is an utterly foolish way to live. And the sad thing is, is large, large portions of the world population live that way. Well, I'd like us now to spend the rest of our time going verse by verse through Psalm 53. And I'm going to be using the visual outline chart. And there's a bigger, again, a bigger copy of it. There's a smaller one on the back of your handout. And... Uh, I'll direct your attention to the top portion, which uh, lists out the purpose for this psalm. David writes prophetic encouragement during a time of national duress, assuring the people that God sees the wickedness of their enemies and will spring to action again in judgment and deliverance. Remember how the psalm ends? Oh, that salvation would come out. Then let God's people rejoice. See, that's his real audience. Psalm 53 is not written to the fool. Psalm 53 is to written people who suffer under fools. For them to see that these people think they're getting away with everything, but they're not. God sees, the judge sees, and he'll take care of things. Over on the right at the top, 
the type of psalm. It's a prophetic meditation with a lament at the end of it, written by David sometime after he restores the tabernacle in the year 1003 B.C. And uh, a little note there that it is almost identical to Psalm 14 with the differences being the name, the title God is used instead of Yahweh, and, and the announcement of judgment is more forceful here in Psalm 53. Well, now move over to the left side, the green column of that handout and of the chart, and there's a note about the headings. There are uh, three headings to this. Uh, firstly, we're told it's for the choir director, and this is a note of authorization, that the choir director in the tabernacle is authorized to take this song and schedule its performance and assign musicians to it, even to assign a tune to it if he wants to change whatever David might have composed with it. And then there's this unusual phrase, it is according to mahalath. Uh, That is a Hebrew word. It has been left as a Hebrew word because no one knows for sure what it means. (laughs) It apparently is the name of a tune. Or maybe it's the uh, a style of playing that is supposed to be used, or maybe it refers even to some kind of an instrument. The fact that we don't know is why we've left it as a Hebrew word in our Bibles and not translated it into English. And then we're told it is a maskeel of David, and I realize I didn't have a note for that in your handouts. A maskeel, the word maskeel is related to the word for wisdom. And so sometimes these psalms mean that Uh, You need to have a skillful musician lead in this song. Uh, Other times, it seems to mean this is a song that will give you skill in living. And I think that's probably the case here. It's it's too short of a song to need a really uh, expert musician. This is a psalm that gives instruction, wisdom on how to view the world. It is a prophetic meditation. So now we move over to the blue columns and uh, there, there are two halves to the psalm. The, the first half is it's an uneven half, verses 1 to 5. Is This is the prophetic meditation on the godless. It's really a lament of the wise person living in a wicked world. I've got, oh, I've got all these fools around me who are doing all this godless, foolish things who think they can get away with it. Verses 1 to 4 is the prophetic indictment of the wicked. And it starts off with an introductory assessment of those who reject divine accountability. Uh, you know, so there are people who say God is not here. There is no God. The, the assessment is the kind of person who thinks that way is a fool. Uh, they don't think that they're a fool. They think they're, they're wise. They think they can get away with things. They think they're clever. But they are fools. This is, not, this is not a word that means stupid, uh, you know, like someone lacking intelligence. There are extremely intelligent people who are very foolish in terms of the things of the Lord. Some of the people that David would have, would have had in mind would have been kings of other nations, people with great capabilities, great power, but morally speaking, very foolish And again, this word that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, this word is intended more to help the people suffering under fools. Now, God can use this as a quickening word to bring wisdom to a fool, too. But David's audience are those suffering in Israel. 
That's that introductory assessment. And it goes on after David quotes this foolish line. David says, they are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. Here is uh, leading now into this examination of mankind uh, that everybody around the world is corrupted. You know, anyone who thinks this way, God doesn't care. God's not going to do anything. <laughs> they are guilty and broken people. No one does good. Verse 2, here is how God examines. And notice it says in verse 2, God has looked down from the heaven upon the sons of men. See, God is doing exactly what they say he's not doing. The fool says, God's not here. Verse 2 says, oh, yes, he is. God is in the perfect perspective to see everything. Night and day are alike to him. There's no hiding from him, no fooling him. He looks down on the sons of men, and this would refer to all the nations of the world, to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God, and then the verdict of man's depravity is given in verse 3. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. No wonder the world's such a mess. <laughs> Left to ourselves, this is us. Uh, Paul, of course, summarizes the teaching of this psalm and others when he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glorious goal, the glorious standard of God's perfections. All of us fall short. So some fall way, way short, but we all fall short. So these... Now, these are convicting words, aren't they? And, and uh, for someone who doesn't know the Lord, the Lord could use this to pierce through their hardened heart, to expose to them they need to deal with this problem of sin. But it's also, as I've said before, a word of comfort to those who know the Lord that God sees, God knows, the prevailing wisdom of this foolish world is not going to prevail. Verse 4 is the words of God himself. So, so far, David has been describing to his listeners what the fool says and what God sees and thinks. And now, in verse five, 4, we have apparently the very words of God himself. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread? See that my people there? That's God speaking about his people, Israel. These evil Philistines, Edomites, Moabites, Egyptians who reject Yahweh, who reject the revelation, the unique place of Israel as well, who are skirmishing against Israel, who are overtaking cities, uh, pillaging and destroying and enslaving and what have you. They think they can just, you know, gobble up, gobble up my people and wipe their mouths and they're all done. Do they, are they really that ignorant? Are they really that oblivious to the fact that they will be held to an account for what they do? This is an expression of astonishment at their ignorance. It is willful ignorance and violence, and God sees it. 
So these first four verses are an indictment. You have the words of David and the words of God himself. And then verse 5 is the announcement of judgment, the prophetic announcement of judgment. David begins to speak again. And he sees the coming dread on the wicked and the disgraceful defeat of the wicked in this fifth verse. There they were in great fear where no fear had been. So the first question is, who are they? And the they is them. <laughs> Did that help? No. The they, <laughs> these are the people who, who do no good, who are up to no good, who think there is no God, who think they're getting away with everything. So he foresees a time where they thought everything was peace and safety and success in their sin, had no fear, and suddenly there's great fear because God shows up. God reveals his holy justice and brings them to an account. And this coming dread that he foresees is described in disgraceful as a disgraceful defeat in verse 5. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. And then David prays to God directly at the end of verse 5. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Hmm. I don't think that this is describing any particular battle, any particular defeat. This is a poem. This is a poetic description of utter defeat. Surrounding armies, besieging a city, seeming so strong, invincible, like they're going to choke that little village or that town out of existence, and then all of a sudden, bam, they're dead. They're just bones. Kind of like what happened with Sennacherib's army when he'd brought his 186,000 troops into Judah and God laid them waste in a night. Put to shame, God rejected them. That's the statement meaning God exerted his judgment. Verse 6 is the final portion of the psalm. It's a little different. Verse 6 is a prayer to the Lord that the Lord would bring deliverance and that that deliverance would bring encouragement. This is the concluding lament, a heart cry for the end of whatever the suppression was that had afflicted the nation. It's a prayer for the God of the tabernacle to deliver Israel on the battlefield. Verse 6, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Now let's think about that now. Come out of Zion. What, Zion, again, was the, the Jebusite city that David overtook. He turned it into the city of David, and then after a short time, he had the Ark of the Covenant brought there, and eventually the whole tabernacle is set up there. They put it up on the higher hill, the hill of the Lord, sometimes called the hill of Zion. God himself, in that unique, special way in the Old Testament times, is living there. David is living there in the city. But it's time for battle, and they go out to battle, and they're met with godless enemies who think they can do whatever they want, and some of God's people in the nation are suffering. They've been attacked. And David here prays, Lord, you who dwell there, come out here to this place of battle and bring us deliverance. Salvation here is a reference not to 
souls going to heaven, but the Lord bringing deliverance in time and space to the people in their difficulty. So that's a prayer. Oh, that salvation, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. It's like a wish prayer. And then one last wish prayer. It's a, it's a request that has woven into it threads of confidence that there is going to be joy in the future, that deliverance will come, and there will be cause for God's people to give much thanks. Verse 6 in the middle says, When God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Captive people. Now, so far as we read from the book of 2 Samuel, there was no time when Israel was taken into full-blown captivity in the days of David. That wouldn't happen for another 700 years. But there were plenty of battles, and while David was by and large victorious, there were also times of defeat, especially after David's great sins and the nation began to experience chastening and began to experience more oppression from their enemies. Nonetheless, God was with them, and so God, God is going to restore them, these people out on probably on the edges of the realm who were suffering from these incursions. And when that was done, when the Lord brought deliverance, that would be an occasion for joy. And so he says, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Parallel lines, of course. Jacob. You know, the nation was named Israel for the most part. That name, but Israel was, of course, the name of Isaac's son, right? But his, his, his first name, his birth name was Jacob. And late in life, the Lord gives him a new name. Israel, meaning something like God fights. Uh, a strong name, isn't it? Jacob, the name Jacob, not such a strong name. So when the nation of Israel is referred to as Jacob, it often, many times in the Psalms, it's highlighting that the nation is in some period of weakness, that they're in a state of neediness, that they need God to come fight for them. They're still Israel. They still have the God who fights, but by themselves they are weak. They need him. That's a great reminder, you know, we need him. As uh, long as you might have known the Lord and as much as you might have experienced of the Lord and grown in him, you still always need him. We need his help more than we realize. We live in a world with all kinds of oppression, with capital O and small O, and we're thankful we live in a pocket of the world that is relatively free, but we're not free of all problems. We need to keep looking to the Lord and taking confidence that our God sees. When people in positions of power and authority or even just influence think that they can do whatever they want and say whatever they want and get away with whatever they think, it is not true. And while we don't wish judgment on people, we do take comfort in knowing that our God sees and our God will bring deliverance, and the fullness of the glorious kingdom will come when King Jesus, the righteous judge, comes again. Join me, please, in prayer. Lord, we do find comfort in these words, even though they are convicting words. 
The gospel has taught us that, left to ourselves, that we are fools like this who are full of corruption and sin. We thank you that you have enwisened us with the gospel to see our need of Christ and the forgiveness and the change that he brings. But we also find encouragement that in this world, which is largely marked by the folly that God isn't going to do anything, we take comfort to know that you will do what needs to be done. You see, you hear, you hear our prayers. And in your time and in your way, you will bring about what is right, whether it be in, in parts before Jesus comes or in all its fullness when he comes again in glory. We know that we have reason to be glad. So thank you for being our Savior and the one who will bring about all your kingdom purposes in Jesus. In that precious name we pray, amen.